Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to your one-stop shop for horror news, true crime, and real-life tales of the unexplained. Monsters at Midnight, The Revenge. Episodes of Monsters upload on a bi-weekly format every other Tuesday. I'm your host, your favorite escaped madman loose on the airwaves, terrorizing your eardrums, Matt Schaefer. Today's episode is going to be another experiment. Gonna try out a scripted episode, as it might prove easier to form and articulate my thoughts. And today's episode is gonna be another involved one, so I hope you enjoy. Getting this out of the way, potential spoilers for the works of David Lynch and the video game Deadly Premonition. Without further ado, lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn out the lights. Monsters at Midnight, the motherfucking revenge rides again. Let's talk about David Lynch. If you're a longtime listener and or friend, you probably know that I'm a big fan. If you're somehow unaware, David Lynch is an American filmmaker and certified art house and alt-kid darling. He made waves early on in his career with his bizarre and experimental collection of short films which would coalesce into his first feature film, Eraserhead. Since then, his filmography has been nothing short of unique. Often critically maligned, but not without their merits, his work has been a deep exploration into the surreal and extrapolation of ideas from quote-unquote dream logic. Genre is fluid in Lynch's films, smearing the lines between sci-fi, crime, romance, film noir, and horror. Getting into the films of David Lynch is no easy task. His work is reliant on multiple viewings and analysis. Even his most accessible works are not without their weird moments and fucked up storytelling. There's a great quote from one of my favorite video games, Max Payne 2. Quote, When you're waking up, the world is a blur. What was clear in a dream suddenly makes no sense. No surreal rescues, no easy, magic way out. End quote. This is probably the best way I can describe what it's like to watch a David Lynch film. Oftentimes, the world Lynch creates in his films is one bathed in mystery. Whether it be Blue Velvet or Lost Highway, Eraserhead or Mulholland Drive, there is always something just out of the lead character's grasp. The brilliance in Lynch comes from the interpretation of all the puzzle pieces. They are there, yes, but a clear answer often isn't. For instance, Lost Highway is one of my favorites. The plot of the film concerns a troubled jazz musician played by Bill Pullman. He and his wife, played by Patricia Arquette, wake up one day to find a videotape that has footage of them sleeping inside their house. Pullman's character soon encounters a strange man, played by Robert Blake, who says they've met before at Pullman's house, and that they are there right now. Another videotape arrives depicting the murder of his wife, and Pullman is arrested. While in prison, P Pullman undergoes a transformation and becomes a completely different character, played by Balthasar Getty. And I mean, completely different. Until the end of the film, there is no acknowledgement of the first third. However, sprinkled in throughout the film are clues that tie in to what could possibly be happening. Patricia Arquette plays a new character in Getty's story a name that Pullman hears in his segments come back into play. At first glance, none of this makes sense. This is the biggest hurdle to getting into Lynch's films. 
He is so comfortable in his films, quote-unquote, not making sense, that he doubles down on it in interviews and writings. Lynch is big into dreaming and meditation, and this is abundantly clear in all of his films. There are long, methodical, awkward pauses in dialogue. There are surreal moments that the camera just hangs on until the viewer is baffled and uncomfortable. Themes of identity are often thrown into question, as one actor can play multiple characters in the same piece. The beauty of watching a David Lynch film is in the fact that none of it, quote-unquote, makes sense. I know that seems like a cop-out answer, but it's genuinely true. The most interesting aspect to me about Lynch is the way he uses time in a narrative. There's a misconception that Lynch uses time travel in his films, but I don't think that's necessarily true, even if that's the easiest way to describe it. Time is fluid. Different planes of existence happen simultaneously, wrap around, meet back with each other. If you think about every time you've had a dream in which you feel like you're moving through sludge, or you don't know when and where you are, or day becomes night and vice versa, it's almost exactly like experiencing a David Lynch film. And they're bad dreams, at that. My good friend William hit the nail on the head when he said that watching a David Lynch film feels like having a bad dream. Not a nightmare, but something you wake up from feeling uneasy or confused. I recently had the pleasure of seeing Inland Empire in the theater. Inland Empire is probably one of his strangest and most obtuse films, and yet I was terrified watching it. But nothing scary, by the traditional definition, happens in it. One of Lynch's best films, and arguably his most accessible, is Blue Velvet. It tells the story of Jeffrey, played by Kyle MacLachlan, who comes home from college after his father has had a stroke. While walking around one day, he finds a severed ear. Super chill, I know, but Jeffrey takes this as an invitation to unravel the deep, dark secrets that exist in the town of Lumberton. Blue Velvet has one of my favorite openings to a film. Little tableaus of this idyllic small town in the U.S. set to the song this film gets its title from. While the film was released in 1986, everything about the set design and characters drips this 50s to 60s Americana. It's nice. It looks like a place you either grew up in or want to retire to. But buckle up, bonehead, because this movie just gets darker and darker until you are in the depths of this feverish nightmare that drips danger and dread. And that calls back to mind the idea of a dream. The dream that starts off pleasant until the darkness of the subconscious bleeds into focus. The ideas, styles, and themes of Blue Velvet come to a head in my favorite effort by Lynch, the TV series Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is, and probably always will be, my favorite TV series. The original run is everything great about David Lynch's work distilled into a cohesive, digestible, highly entertaining primetime drama. I also love the film Firewalk With Me and the 2017 revival, but those are their own separate can of worms to be opened maybe another time. I'm mainly going to focus on the original two seasons as they directly tie into the next topic. Twin Peaks tells the story of Laura Palmer and her murder in the titular small town. 
A death that shocks the community, it calls the attention of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, played by Kyle MacLachlan, as it may have ties to a string of other murders in the area. Sure enough, it does. As Cooper stays in Twin Peaks to investigate, he slowly pulls back the layers of the town's seedy underbelly and potential connections to other worlds outside of explanation. I stand by the fact that Twin Peaks, to this day, is unlike any other bit of television storytelling. Again, like all of Lynch's works, it's difficult to give a blanket recommendation to it as it is still relatively slow and esoteric. The show is set up almost to be a parody of primetime soap operas, which were extremely popular at the time. Within Twin Peaks are multiple tales of infidelity and characters wrapped up in shady dealings and addiction. Coupling all of this is Cooper's unique investigative style steeped in Tibetan mysticism and dream interpretation. And beyond that is a mysterious place known as the Black Lodge that provides even more guidance for Cooper as he journeys through Twin Peaks to solve Laura Palmer's murder. It's a lot. And you'll gather pretty quickly whether or not this show is for you. The characters are what really bring it home for me. They're also goddamn memorable with distinct moments and personalities. Even the character of Leo, one of the biggest scumbags on the planet, is kind of charming and likable because he is played with absolutely zero passion by Eric DeRay. Every time I rewatch the series, I'm always super invested in what is going to happen next as the characters are all deeply flawed and believable as actual humans. For the most part, at least. Josie's character is a waste of time, and James, at this point, is just a meme. Outside of the characters, the universe and lore of Twin Peaks is deeply fascinating to me. When I first watched the show, I was absolutely stunned at how unflinching the show was in blending a crime drama with the supernatural. And what's so fucking cool about it is everyone just goes along with it. That's what makes Cooper such an engaging lead and one of the best characters in TV history. His conviction that some sort of guidance beyond his understanding will eventually lead him to catch the killer is deeply endearing. The supporting cast of Sheriff Truman, Hawk, Andy, and Lucy, following him into the woods as Cooper mutters names at rocks and tosses them at bottles is one of my favorite moments of the show and one that perfectly encapsulates Twin Peaks as a whole a murder mystery in a world both wonderful and strange. But what would happen if the view of David Lynch, specifically Twin Peaks, was translated into a video game? Enter Deadly Premonition. Talk about wonderful and strange, and just utterly fucking broken, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Deadly Premonition is the brainchild of Hidetaka Suihiro, a.k.a. Swiri. He stubbornly refuses to admit that the game was inspired by one piece of media, but I have eyes and ears and so does everyone else, and it was very clear from the first press trailer, when the game was known as Rainy Woods, that it would be heavily inspired by Twin Peaks. The original press trailer is fascinating because it stylistically looks more like Twin Peaks than the finished game, though everything in that trailer is still in the game in some sort of capacity. I'm not going to give a full history lesson on the development of Deadly Premonition. I recommend checking out Matt McMuscle's video for that. But the gist of the story is that the 
game was originally supposed to be a title for the PSP, then the PS2, before eventually landing its initial release on the Xbox 360. Obviously, this is a big jump in hardware, and Sweary and the team at Access Games were not fully equipped for this. Coupled with the fact that the team had to change several stylistic things, presumably to avoid potential legal issues, they certainly had their work cut out for them. Deadly Premonition was eventually released in 2010 as a budget title to legendarily mixed to negative reviews. The plot of Deadly Premonition follows FBI Special Agent Francis York Morgan as he comes to a small town named Greenvale to investigate the murder of a teenage girl. Wait a minute. You wouldn't be wrong for thinking the story of Deadly Premonition is blatantly plagiarizing that of Twin Peaks in the first few hours. There are too many parallels to count, and I recommend checking out Grimbeard's video for a more in-depth breakdown. The biggest comparisons to be made are the game's setup, young girl murdered in small town, FBI investigates, whole town has dirty laundry, and the weird visions York has in otherworldly places. However, Deadly Premonition's story ultimately succeeds at being a remix of story beats and ideas from the show. More accurately, it kind of reminds me of those memes where an AI reads X amount of X material and writes its own. In this case, I made an AI watch every episode of Twin Peaks and write its own episode. This is the result. When York remarks to his imaginary friend Zack that his coffee warned him about the danger in Greenvale, I knew I was in for a treat. That's not to say the story and dialogue seem robotic. On the contrary, the story is Deadly Premonition's greatest achievement. However, this doesn't mean it's for everyone. Like the show, it's truly going to be too weird and offbeat for some tastes. And frankly, the most likely reason why I like the game's story so much is because of how unabashed its love for Twin Peaks is, much like my own. I found myself gravitating to the bizarre and lovable characters much like I did in the show. I was genuinely curious to see the mystery unfold and how it would affect everyone involved. The story also has enough unique material and twists and turns that it eventually has its own identity separate from Twin Peaks. It's like if you gave a kid Twin Peaks action figures and they eventually play a game of their own. Or someone wrote Twin Peaks 2 fanfiction. That sounds insulting, but I don't mean it as such. By the end of the game, I was actually moved to tears by the personal revelations and dark, twisted horrors the game conjured up. There's a lot that can be, and will be, said about the actual game Deadly Premonition is, but I have nothing but love for the story. The mood and characterization of the game is aided by its score. The score gets a bad rep, and I understand why. It's not super expansive, so you'll hear the same tracks over and over, and some of them are... goofy, to say the least. The biggest issue is that there isn't a true flow to their usage in scenes, so they'll end abruptly. Coupled with the fact that the audio mixing is terrible, and the music is way louder than it should be, some of them are also kind of rough. 
I'm not a huge fan of the tracks that have vocals in them, mainly because I don't find the vocalist to be a particularly good singer. She's also clearly Japanese singing in English, and I honestly think she's reading words written out phonetically. It's weird hearing a song that you only kind of understand to begin with, but the songs are catchy, so the fact that I don't know what she's actually saying half the time is headache-inducing. However, there are some really good, moody, and powerful tracks on the soundtrack. The ones that work the best are obviously inspired by Angelo Badalamenti's iconic score for Twin Peaks, but they have enough characters to stand on their own. It really deepens the emotions of certain scenes, and punctuates moments of horror and comedy alike. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the game, you may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Why did this game get such shit reviews? Well, let me tell ya, this game isn't super fun to play. Much like the story, you're going to figure out pretty quickly whether or not the gameplay is going to be your style. It's widely known that Deadly Premonition wasn't originally supposed to have combat in it, and it shows. Within the first 30 minutes of this game, you'll be battling zombie-like creatures called Shadows in this shitty knockoff Silent Hill-ass Otherworld with a third-person shooting style lifted directly from Resident Evil 4. The funny thing is, this is exactly the type of game you'd expect if you bought this game for the 360, with its painfully generic and uninspired box art. But this is a shocking change of pace given the opening cinematic's direct mirroring of Twin Peaks mourning the death of Laura Palmer and Dale Cooper's entrance into town. You can immediately tell that combat was a mandate. Can't have a combatless game on the 360! No one's gonna drink Mountain Dew and eat Doritos and do nothing but drive for 20 hours! This results in combat being insultingly easy. Ammo drops are everywhere, and in these other world sections, you frequently get to safe rooms where you can access your toolbox and later on buy ammo. Combat also has no bearing on the plot. Like, there's a throwaway line at the beginning where York says he better not tell anyone that he just spent a bunch of time shooting zombies or they'll think he's crazy. The most these sections have to do with the actual game is you'll typically be doing your investigation of crime scenes during them, wherein you'll need to find a handful of clues to profile what happened there. It's a neat idea, but it's painfully linear. You're guided down corridors, filled with monsters, and then you'll find a clue that you literally can't miss because the pickup icon is a different color. But you know what, it's not unfair to suggest Deadly Premonition have some sort of combat, because the majority of gameplay in between story missions is frankly boring. Most of the runtime is taken up with cutscenes, which I don't mind since the story was the thing keeping me playing. Story missions occur in certain time frames in the in-game world, so you'll have a lot of downtime in between them. But Greenvale is weirdly large and spread out, with side missions popping up a great distance from each other. And driving is fucking whack. Granted, I played this game on PC with a keyboard and mouse because that's my preference, but Jesus, it is so bad. Turning is too sharp, the car has no weight, and using the handbrake almost always flips the car 180 degrees. The only saving grace is that, while driving, you can trigger York to have a conversation with Zack. 
I should explain. I mentioned that Zack is York's imaginary friend. That's not exactly true, but for the majority of the game, that's what you come to believe. It's an interesting twist on Cooper talking into his tape recorder, and a clever way to have York address the player. While driving, you get a lot of insight into York's life, and this is also when you learn that he isn't a one-to-one -one surrogate for Dale Cooper. York has more in common with a Tarantino character, which is very generous, I realize. He talks about old films and music, and often reminisces about the horrific crimes he's investigated in the past. You start to learn a lot about him, and by the end of the game, and given the big reveal about York and Zack, he honestly has become one of my favorite video game characters. Suffering through the awful driving mechanics was worth it, to a degree, to learn about this deeply cool and deeply troubled individual. I love when he talks about Malcolm McDowell and his love of cat people, and I love hearing him suppress memories when he talks about what he found in a murderous senator's basement. This kind of characterization reaches to a few key members of the main cast, but not much further. The citizens of Greenvale are silly and memorable, but mainly because of gimmicks and their parallels to characters on Twin Peaks. This made it hard for me to care to pursue any of the side missions. There are some interesting moments to discover, but not many. It really feels like padding. The whole experience of Deadly Premonition feels like a magic trick that never truly comes to fruition. Like the magician forgot his trick sleeve or something. There's all these immersive sim mechanics like requiring York to eat, sleep, and shave regularly so he doesn't get stinky and needing to maintain and fuel your car. But none of them really come together in any sort of meaningful way. Food is plentiful, and there are beds literally everywhere, whether they're in someone's house or in a shed in a field. There's no need to focus on item management, because you're always going to find what you need. By the end of the game, both my inventory and my toolbox were pretty much flush with ammo, food, health supplies, and caffeinated beverages. And there's no real urgency in taking care of your car, because you can always just start driving a new car. The biggest issue with Deadly Premonition is that every version of the game has serious stability issues. The PC port is one of the worst I've ever seen. The most fussy, crybaby PC port I've ever experienced. The game would crash almost like clockwork after 30 to 45 minutes of playing. When I first started playing, the game's frame rate was so poor it was borderline unplayable, until I learned that changing the Windows compatibility of the executable file would fix certain issues. And that's true. What's baffling is that I had to set it for Windows XP, an operating system it shouldn't even be optimized for, to fix the frame rate issue. Later on, after the game continuously crashed while trying to load my save file, I had to set it to Windows 98 compatibility just to even get it running. The most confusing issue I had was loading up my game and finding all the shadows were replaced with thick black squares. I literally had to change the compatibility from 98 to XP and back to 98 to fix it. And then sometimes... Just restarting my PC would fix certain hangups and crashes. I'm either exceptionally patient or stupid to have seen this game through to the end. In fact, I think I'm both. 
Almost every Steam achievement is considered rare as less than 10% of players have gotten them, even something as mundane as completing Episode 2. I understand why people are quick to give up on this game. It's an absolute nightmare to get running, and when you do, it, it's not remarkably fun to play. But, call me crazy, kinda love this game. I find this game's reputation of being the room of video games, or so bad it's good, hyperbolic. There are many games that are much worse than Deadly Premonition, both technically and story-wise. The caveat of this is how willing you are to suffer through a fundamentally broken game to experience a story with a deep reverence for a weird 90s TV show. So, it's no wonder that this game appeals to me, based on the story alone. I've learned that I am exceptionally forgiving to games that have a concept I adore. It's why I've beaten games like Kane and Lynch 2, Manhunt, and Die Hard Vendetta, of all things. And now, it's why I've beaten Deadly Premonition. I love the story of this game and its adherence to and interpretation of Twin Peaks. I love the characters and their horrific journeys. I love the view of America filtered through the lens of David Lynch as told by a Japanese dev team. I love weird games, and ultimately, I'm very happy I played Deadly Premonition. I'm excited to play more of Deadly Premonition 2. I just started and it's already shaping up to be a more polished experience. I mean, it's not perfect. There are some mechanics I'm not in love with, and the UI is so painfully Nintendo you can tell it was ported from the Switch, but I'm excited to see where it takes me. It has less outwardly to do with Twin Peaks, but is still delightfully weird, with more anime-ass movement and cutscenes. I'm also stoked on this voodoo-laced Louisiana backdrop. Hopefully, I find it worth talking about, and I will report back if it is. And that concludes today's episode. I hope you enjoyed this new scripted episode of Monsters. If you have thoughts on David Lynch or Deadly Premonition or anything spooky in general, shoot us an email at monsters.midnight at gmail.com or shoot us a DM through Facebook and Instagram. You can follow me on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash mattflamingo. I try to write about everything I watch, so if you want my takes on non-horror films, head over there. Until next time, my tender lumplings, I'll see you in my dreams. Thank you.